For the last month, we've been in a series that we've entitled Unfinished, looking at Luke's, if you will, kind of fifth gospel. Uh, Of course, we know the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell and chronicle the life and times uh, of Jesus walking on this earth and ministering and serving uh, those, seeking and saving those who were lost. And, and in the book of Acts, we get kind of the fifth gospel, if you will. It's the gospel of the church and how Christ was going to impact uh, his people and his church uh, to be, begin the movement, begin the process of changing the world through the gospel that he had shared, changing the world through uh, the gift of salvation that was uh, given to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, that day on Calvary. And so we have already, in our uh, five weeks that we've been in this series, have logged a lot of miles so far. First of all, we have seen uh, the time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. We've seen what Jesus was doing in those uh, uh, days after he had resurrected from the dead, that he had been seen and and been talked to and and touched by 500 people even at one point. Uh, He had interacted on numerous occasions with his disciples. It was that during that time Jesus would teach his disciples what they were to do when he goes. Of course, then we learned that uh, they were to stay and wait in Jerusalem, and they, they obey. They do exactly what Jesus says, and they wait patiently. And during that time, we see that they replace Judas, who had betrayed Jesus and had ended his life. They also uh, talk about uh, some of the ministry that they are going to do as the Spirit of God comes. And then uh, we are told that the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have uh, the day of Pentecost where the Spirit empowers and enables and, and, and fills the uh, Jerusalem Christians at that point uh, with the Holy Spirit so that they can go and change the world uh, for Jesus Christ. Uh, that is lived out in the miracle that we see, the first miracle of the, of the book of Acts, and that is the gift of languages, where the gospel is able to be proclaimed in all sorts of languages, because during the day of Pentecost, a great festival was going on where dozens of people, or multitude of people from dozens of lands all over the known world were there, and in their own language, they were to, able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ uh, meant to the disciples and how he could change the lives of those pilgrims who were there. And of course, they accept the gospel message. 3,000 are added to their number. And last week we learned about what the mission and the ministries of the early church were all about and how we can follow that model moving forward. But in verse 43 of chapter 2, if you're in Acts chapter uh, 2, we'll be in Acts chapter 3, but in verse 43 of chapter 2, in the middle of our passage last week, a phrase is given, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, we're not given a lot of these wonders and signs, but this morning in Acts chapter 3, we are going to see what is the first of many miracles that take place through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a miraculous book. It's filled with miracles. In fact, of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, in 12 of the chapters, you're going to see someone healed. In fact, there are 14 very specific healing uh, miracles that take place in the book of Acts. And here is the first one that we're going to see. A man who was crippled at birth because of the power of the name of Jesus Christ, is raised up and able to leap up and and run and do things he had never done before. 
And because of that miracle, it's going to change the way people understand Jesus and the apostles. But as we'll learn over and over again, as people accept this through these signs and wonders, there will be people who will reject what Jesus is all about and the place that he should play in our lives. But before we get there, let's look at Acts chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 26. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. I'll ask for God's blessing on our time in the Word, and then we'll jump right in to what we need to understand about Acts chapter 3 under the heading. In a Jerusalem minute, everything can change. Here, let's go ahead and see what the Word of God says for us this morning. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour. That's about three o'clock in the afternoon, by the way. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all people, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied... um, the Holy One and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, from whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as you did also, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. 
You are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with his fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning each or to by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's stop and pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage of scripture. I thank you that you are the God of the miraculous. You are the God who heals and restores people. You are the God who is even now restoring all things to yourself and as we come into a world where we see all kinds of trouble and experience all kinds of pains and all kinds of sorrow and disappointment, Lord, I am glad as a follower of yours that I can have complete and full hope that you are the one who can address every need that I have. And so, Lord, I pray that I would be patient, that the people of this church would be patient in waiting for you to restore all things. Father, I pray that as we turn from our sin and as we live in obedience to you and your word, that we might experience times of refreshing, that we might be encouraged in our hearts, that we might be filled with joy, knowing you are the one who binds up the brokenhearted, who sets the captives free, and Lord, who allows the lame to walk. There's much in this passage that we may not understand And maybe even on this side of heaven, Lord, we may never understand. But I thank you for your word that helps us to know more about why some of these things happen and why you choose to heal in one moment and in another moment don't. So teach us from your word this morning, I ask, and that it would change us in a powerful way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm a small town boy. I've lived in the town of Hinckley my entire life, and I love small-town community living. One of the great things that I love about being in a small town is going to um, the local sporting events that take place in our local schools. It's a community event. You know everybody. It's kind of like a, a big reunion of the town. And, and when you go to the high school, for especially your basketball games at Hinkley Big Rock, and it's probably true in some of your high schools as well, you'll walk the hallways to the gymnasium and the different clubs and organizations will have tables out wanting you to buy this raffle ticket, purchase this thing for a particular fundraiser as they try to raise money for their organization. And so every time I go to a ball game, I always throw a couple extra dollars in my pocket, i got to be honest, for the concession stand, but also... to donate uh, something because uh, these are your neighbors. These are, in many ways, your kids' classmates, and you want to be supportive in a small community like our own. And so one day, as I was walking in, one of the booster clubs was doing a 50-50 raffle. And they said, Mr. Badal, would you like to buy some tickets? And I said, well, how much are they? He says, one dollar for one, or you can get six for five dollars. And I had a five-dollar bill in my pocket, so I said, give me six tickets put the tickets in my pocket, and really never thought about it from that point on. So halftime rolls around, and I'm deep in conversation because I talk a lot, and so I'm talking with an individual, and all of a sudden I hear over the PA announcement, the winner of the 50-50 raffle is Tim Badal. And I stop, forgot even what I was talking to the person about, and I stood up, and, and there's a clapping that's going on, and I'm excited, and the PA announcer says, and the jackpot for the 50-50 raffle is $1,100. Hallelujah. Glory, right? 
And of course, because I'm so quiet and so uh, mousy in my personality, I made an absolutely amazing scene. As I bounded this carcass down the bleachers, I am thinking, what am I going to do with this $1,100? Number one, I'm not going to tell Amanda about it. Number two... I'm going to make sure I give something to the Lord. Remember, we got to give back to the Lord, okay? Especially when you gamble with God's money. And I'm all excited. I've got all these ideas on what I can do with this money and, and all of that. And uh, people are enjoying watching my life totally change. I've gone from a poor man to a rich man. This is awesome. By the time, and by the way, all of this is going on, I'm a quick thinker, so all of this has gone through my head as I've gotten to the bottom of the bleachers, and by the time I hit the gym floor to go collect my earnings, the PA announcer goes, uh, we'd like to apologize, the jackpot is $11. So for those that don't do math, I made $6. Okay. Don Henley and the Eagles were right when they said, in a New York minute, everything can change. I went from the thrill of victory to the absolute agony of defeat. Now, here's the funny thing. The audacity at that point, you know what they asked? Do you want to donate the money back? I would have donated the money back had they not messed up like that, right? No, I took my six bucks and I went to the concession stand, okay? (laughs) But how true is it, in a matter of a moment, your life can change. I went from one spectrum of ecstasy down to a, a great place of disappointment, all in a matter of a couple seconds. And some of us have experienced life that way. Some of us have gone in and been having a great life and everything's going great for you and you, if someone was to ask you, are you content, you would say, I am utterly and completely content. I am happy with my life only to go to the doctor's office and hear your life has dramatically changed. Some of you experience the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or strife in a relationship where everything in a moment was turned on its head. You were going in one direction, full speed ahead, only to have the emergency brake pulled and you suffer the greatest whiplash of your life. In a New York minute, everything can change. But some of us have experienced great times of joy. Recently, and I think I've shared this with you, but recently I was at a convenience store gas station in the town where my work is at, and as I was paying for my gas bill, a man screamed out an exclamation because with a scratch-off lotto ticket, he had just in that moment won $4 million. In a New York minute, it was a Waterman minute, anything and everything can change. And some of us have experienced the good side of that. Others of us have experienced the bad side of it. In Acts chapter 3, we come to a Jerusalem minute. A moment in time where a man's life is going to change. Now here's the great truth that I want you to know that is overarching all of what we're going to talk about today. No matter who you are, 
No matter what you're going through, no matter if life has been good or life has been bad, whatever the circumstances of your life are, when Jesus shows up in your life in that moment, everything can change. And the lame man of Acts chapter 3 is going to experience it. So there's two points I want to draw out this morning. As we look at Acts chapter 3, I want you to see, first of all, a hopeless situation. And then I want you to see what is our heavenly solution. So let's look, first of all, at the hopeless situation. The hopeless situation. Notice in verses 1 through 3 of Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are heading into the temple. They're not doing this as adherents to Old Testament Judaism, but this is a reminder that the early church had no place to meet. They again were meeting in the temple courts, as Acts chapter 2 had told us, and they were meeting day after day in one another's homes. The temples were a great place for worship to take place. And it was an awesome opportunity as they worshiped as new Christians, uh, living out what would be called the way, the, the way of Jesus Christ, that they would have opportunities to interact with their friends and family members who were still very much adhering to the Old Testament Jewish ways apart from Jesus. And so they're on their way. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. We're not told what kind of day it is, but uh, it seems like any other ordinary day. And here's the uh, disciples, Peter and John, heading to pray. And they come upon a lame man, a man who had been crippled. We're told he had been crippled by birth. So just as a reminder, and we read through these things and we don't think about it, but he was lame. He he could not walk. We're told that he had uh, legs that did not function as they needed to. We're not told exactly what the injury or the disability exactly is. But we don't need to know because we know the outcome is is he is unable to move from point A to point B without the help of one another. Now, a couple things we need to know about this malady. Number one, it isn't a malady that was done because of some reckless activity on his part. He had not gotten drunk and done something stupid. He had not been uh, overly aggressive in, in some sort of work experiment or something that caused this. He had not been clumsy or fallen from a, a high ladder or something that would cause his legs not to work. It tells us very clearly that he had had this malady from birth. And so this man and this picture, and by the way, in this chapter, you'll see a lot of contrast that will go on. And I'll highlight some of them and others I won't, but one of the main contrasts is, is the pitifulness of this man who would then be placed under what is called the beautiful gate. And so this man who has not been able to walk, he's not had the opportunity to live out life like everybody else has. This is a young boy who experienced, who was not able to experience, playing with his friends, running and playing tag and doing what little Jewish boys would do in the first century. As he grew older, this man probably had no opportunity to uh, work for a living. Nobody was going to hire him uh, to do any of the things that his other maybe friends and siblings might be able to do that didn't suffer from this malady. Uh, For the most part, scholars say that if you were a crippled individual, uh, there was really probably very little chance that you would experience love and relationship and marriage. You would live with your family. And uh, if you had a good family, 
If your family hadn't thrown you out because they had thought you were accursed for your disability, that they would care for you. And it seems as if this man was loved and cared for because we're told in the text that he would be carried each and every day uh, to the temple gates and he would ask for help. He would ask for alms. He would do what, uh, within the Jewish culture, uh, was what we would see a lot of people doing in our own culture today. And that is when they're down on their luck, going and standing at a place where lots of people will enter and exit, have some sort of sign, something that shows that there's a need, and he would, with a tin cup or an open hand, ask for money so that he may offset some of the costs of living life. And I want you to notice this morning that one of the greatest truths that we can walk away from here is the understanding and knowledge that life is tough. Life is tough. This man gives us a picture of how difficult life can be. Life for this man would not be easy. Everything that he did would have to be thought through. Everything that he would want to accomplish, even the daily necessities of living life and caring for oneself would have to be thought through. And for those of us who don't struggle with those types of disabilities, we don't understand it. We don't get how difficult life can be. This man was a man who lived with great disability, but also probably great disappointment. And so he's positioned and stationed at this beautiful gate, and he's looking for help. Now, we need to recognize this morning, while we have come light years in the service of those who struggle with disabilities, we need to recognize there's a a long way we can still go in caring and ministering to those who find themselves suffering maladies and struggles, some from birth and others uh, through events of, of human life. But in the first century, I want you to recognize life for this man was probably at times utterly impossible. And I want you to recognize this morning when it says there was a lame man and he's asking for help, This is not a panhandler that looks able-bodied and seemingly could be able to take care of himself. This is a man who is utterly destitute and in need of help. To be one who is disabled or crippled in first century days would be in many ways a long death sentence of missing out on great opportunities and missed expectations. A hopeless situation, reminding us that life can be tough. But what causes life to be tough? So we come to this passage, and and right away, if we don't read through it too quickly, we come to verse 2, and we see a man lame from birth. And we just stop there and go, why God? Why? If you're such a good God, why? Why? Why does this man, he hasn't done anything. If it's from birth, he hasn't sinned. He hasn't made a bad decision. Why, God? And and maybe this morning, if, if you're reading this for the first time, maybe in your Bible you should write, Why, God? Because if we're really honest with ourselves, that's the question we will ask when we see these circumstances. And the problem is, is for those that find themselves struggling with these types of questions, 
Many times God in his infinite wisdom doesn't give an answer. How often have you asked the question, why God, only to hear crickets? Why God did you give me this condition? Why God did you uh, allow this circumstance to take place in my life? God, how, how could you allow what has taken place to my children? The missed expectations, the things that we had planned for our lives or the lives of others, and, and now they're gone because life is tough. What is the answer? Well, I'm not sure I have an answer for you other than what the Bible tells us. And you may be satisfied with that answer, and you may not. But write this down in your outlines, because I don't want to miss this. When they approach the temple, they come upon a lame man who was lame by birth. And we've got to stop and say, God, why, why would that be? How could a loving and caring God, an all-powerful God, allow such a thing to take place? Let me tell you four reasons why I think it could take place. Number one, the reason why there is suffering in the world, why there are lame people, why there are disabled individuals, why there are uh, cancer, why there's cancer, why there's struggle, why there's strife, why there's death, and and all of that. The reason why we suffer and struggle as people, first of all, is we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. In the book of Genesis, as it chronicles the creation story, each and every day that God creates, He looks at His creation at the end of the day, and He utters the phrase, it was good. And then He creates man, and He says, it was very good. And so we recognize that when God created and put this world into existence, when He knit us together in our mother's womb and in the beginning of time, everything was good. It functioned as it should. It was beautiful. It was right. And as we look now from beyond the fall, we have really no understanding of what life before sin was like what our bodies may have been like, what our relationships could have been like. Because in that garden, after God said it was very good, man rebelled against God and put upon himself and us, his posterity, and even all of creation under a curse. And that curse caused fertile ground to have weeds It caused man and woman who had a perfect and wonderful and beautiful relationship to have strife and all kinds of fighting. It caused a perfect relationship between God and man to be a relationship where man now stands hostile against God. And so as we look back and we wonder pre-Adam's sin... Because the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and now all have sinned. We now, because we are in the line and and in the descendants of Adam, carry this sin within us. And because of that, our world does not function as it should. And because of that, we experience great sorrow. Because of that, we do not always see things meet our expectations. Because of that, there is loss. Because of that, there's grief. Because of that, there is death and there is dying. And there's all manner of dysfunction in our world. And we just need to recognize this morning that sometimes we suffer because we are a part of the human race. 
This seemingly is why this man is suffering. He's not done anything on his own that would cause it. No one else has done this to him. We give no report that someone had harmed his mom during the pregnancy and and, uh, assaulted her that would have caused in utero the baby's joints to go out of order or out of whack. We, We get none of that. What we get is seemingly an innocent individual being impacted in a way that would change his life forever, would cause his life to be very, very difficult all the days of his life, And the only thing that he can seemingly blame it on is not a decision he made, but because he lives in a fallen world. And some of us this morning need to recognize there's no other answer than that. We live in a fallen world. Number two, I want you to notice that the second reason why you may be suffering, the second reason why you may uh, be dealing with things that you would rather not that your life isn't perfect, is not just because of the fallen world, but it gets more specific. It's because of personal sin. Because of personal sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.30 tells us that the church of Corinth, that within the church, there were people that were sick and there were people that were dying. And Paul says the reason why is you're making a mockery of the things of God and God is bringing His discipline upon you. And so the reason why you're suffering, the reason why you're having to grieve some very difficult things in your life isn't because you just live in a fallen world and bad things are going to happen to good people, but because bad things are going to happen to people who make bad decisions and who choose badly, and the consequences of those bad decisions and those sinful actions sometimes come back upon us. The book of Galatians says, a man, a God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. And so God in his mercy, and you need to understand this this morning, God in his mercy is able because of the blood of Jesus Christ to overlook much of our sins. And in his mercy and his grace, he allows sins that we should be held accountable to to not get the full extent of those sins. But God also reserves the right to hold us accountable for our sins. And there are sins uh, that are particular in our lives that God may say, you know what, for your good, for you to learn, for you to understand that rebellion against me is a serious thing, God chooses in His great infinite wisdom at times to say, I'm going to hold you accountable for this sin. Now, I want you to know there's really no fairness, if you will, from a human perspective about this. Because if you think about it, there are people that will live with reckless abandonment and never struggle, never have an issue. And then a child of God blows it in one area, in one moment, and the struggle comes. This is a beautiful beautiful example of this, is David in his sin of adultery. David is a man after God's own heart. David is is doing what is right in the eyes of God. David has a wonderful relationship with God until one day he sees a lady bathing on a roof not far from the palace. And lust fills his heart and he can't grab a hold of that lust. And so he says, I want this woman. He sleeps with her. And no doubt he is not the only person in Jerusalem on that night that has committed adultery. But in that moment, God in His wisdom 
would allow not only for Bathsheba to become pregnant, a consequence of that action, and number two, that that baby would be born and then very quickly die. Now why would God allow that? Because God was using this consequence of his sin to drive his child back to himself. That had that consequence not been there, then David could have gotten deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. Had he not experienced the consequences of his sin, there would have been no warning to stop what he was doing. Some of us, and this is really hard for us to swallow this morning, some of us are experiencing the pain and sorrow and deep pain and sorrow of life, not because we live in a fallen world and we can blame Adam for that. The only place we can look is ourselves. We've blown it. We chose in a moment a decision that would have massive ramifications in our life for the entirety of it. Thirdly, so we have life can be tough, and the reason why is we live in a fallen world or because we've committed personal sin. Or third, because someone has sinned against us. And so maybe this morning you're living a tough life and life isn't going the way you want it to and you're saying, well, okay, it is living in a fallen world, but but for as much as I can tell what I'm struggling with, what I'm dealing with, it's not my fault. Even though I'm a sinner, even though I'm not perfect, I can assure you maybe the consequences of, of what I'm experiencing right now isn't because of something I've done and because of that, there's all kinds of shame and there's all kinds of, of, of concern about this. And the reason is, is because you're a victim of someone else's sin. Joseph is a great example of this in the Bible. We studied Joseph last year. And Joseph, think about it. Joseph finds himself going from a favored son in a home of a, a, a wonderful godly man living, and while his family wasn't perfect, a good home, a home that was protected and all of that, to in a moment, in fact, in a New York minute, going from being the favored son, having all that he needs to live and be prosperous, to being chained up and dragged behind traders who are going to put him into a slave auction. Why? Did he do something wrong? Well, of course, Joseph was a sinner, and Joseph, of course, lived in a fallen world. But that wasn't the reason why all this happened. The reason why all this happened was because his deadbeat brothers couldn't keep their anger in check, and they threw him into a pit. They wanted to kill him, but then wanting to make a profit and not have the blood of their brother on their hands, they sold him off. And you would think, well, Joseph would say, I'm not a slave, I'm a favored son. Well, nobody would believe him because of the sins of someone else, the sins of his brothers. We see that in the sin of Potiphar's wife. So Joseph moves his way up, and if you want to know more of the story, go to the end of Genesis and you'll learn that story. But Joseph finds an opportunity to work and and, and again find a place of significance. And right when he gets to a place where life is going well, a woman accuses rape of him. Even though he's innocent, her deception and her manipulation and her lust get him into trouble that puts him into prison for 13 years. And so when Joseph's in prison, surely he could say, well, it's Adam's fault, but it's of no fault of his. It's the fault of 
Potiphar's wife. And some of you this morning are experiencing great pain and great sorrow, not because you're perfect, you're a sinner, but your sin is not the reason for what you're experiencing. And you've got to recognize that. And here's the hard thing. It doesn't make it any easier. Easier, Because you already know that. You've already been offended by the hurts and pains and sorrows that have taken place. One final one, and then I've got to get moving in this, but one final way is that suffering comes because of demonic activity. And so we've got the fall, we've got because of our own personal sin, we've got the sins of others, but now demonic activity. And we are told over and over again that we can become direct targets of the devil. Uh, The story of Job comes to mind where the devil comes to God and says, listen, if your hand wasn't on Job, he would surely walk away. And God gives an, an opportunity, an arena for the devil to mess with Job within parameters. And the devil goes and he attacks and he takes away and removes all of the goodness in Job's life. He strickens him with all types of uh, issues. He takes away his family. He does horrific things to Job. And Job remains faithful. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, that the apostle Paul was tormented by a messenger of Satan. And he asked over and over and over again, God, remove this, remove this. And God would say, no, it's there for a purpose. And some of us right now are experiencing pain and torment and sorrow, not because we're just a part of the human race or because we've sinned and are bearing the consequences of it or because someone else has sinned and we're bearing their consequences, but some of it may be you are a direct target of the devil's And he's messing with you. Can I tell you, in 15 years, I would have never said this, but in the last six months, we as elders have believed that we are a direct target of the devils here at the church. We're feeling it. Some of the strangest and weirdest things have taken place. It's been the hardest six months of ministry for many of us. And we're asking the question, and it isn't because we per se are involved in some heinous or ugly sin. It isn't because of just the fall of the world. We've been in the, in the world since day one of this church. But something very significant is happening, and we're praying through it and working through it, and we believe that we're a target. And so these are the ways that the Bible helps us understand that life can be tough. Here's a reason why. But here's what I want you to recognize and know. Then I'm going to fast forward through the rest of my sermon. When Paul asks for God to remove it, God tells Paul something that we need to remember. My grace is sufficient and my power is made evident in your weakness. And so maybe you find yourself today hurting for whatever reasons... Understand two truths. Number one, God is enough to get you through it. Now, does that mean you'll be prosperous? Does that mean your cancer will go away? Does that mean that your disability will go away? Probably not. God can, and when he chooses, he will heal. But that's usually, we call those miracles, they're exceptions to the rules. But within our struggle, in those tough times, God is enough And here's the great thing. When we are weak, God manifests and makes himself through you strong. And so that's the great promise that we have. And so we come to this passage and we ask, why God? Why a lame man? And the scriptures 
I'm so thankful, walk us through it. A couple other truths, and we'll fast forward quickly through them. What we see is another reminder when life is tough is sometimes our trying isn't good enough. Sometimes our trying isn't good enough. And so what will inevitably happen is when life is hard, we will uh, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We will do whatever we can in our power to try to alleviate the pain. And what we see in this lame man, nothing's going to fix it. No amount of friends are going to fix it. No amount of money is going to fix it. No amount of support is going to fix it. This man is, this man was, and this man will be, in his estimation, always crippled, always lame, always struggling with something that is so much bigger than him. And this is a reminder then that we shouldn't put our hope in temporal things. Write that down. We shouldn't put our hope in temporal fixes. You see this man, he goes to the temple, and and what's the temporal fix? Give me some money, some gold and silver. That will alleviate some of the problem. That will alleviate some of the pain. That will make life maybe worth the living. If I get, so a good day for this man is there's a lot of money in his tin cup. A bad day is that there's not much money in the tin cup. Imagine with me that it, the weather determined it. If it was a rainy day, people were running by him. If it was a hot day, people didn't want to stay out in the sun. All kinds of things could cause this man not to have a good or bad day. And yet he put his attention that the only thing that would make his life better was money. How many of us in our struggles, in our sorrows, look to possessions and people and pleasures and the temporal things of life to somehow say, this will make it better. I recently was talking with a young man and the young man had just bought a car and he says, I love how this car makes me feel. I love owning a car. And I said, you don't own it, you're making payments on it. And I said, I'm heartbroken. He says, you're not happy that I have a new car. I said, no, I'm not, because if you think that car is going to make you happy, it's not. And I I don't want to be there that day when that car no longer gives you the joy and the happiness and the contentment that it did, because the Bible says, do not put your treasures on things on the earth, because uh, moths will destroy and rust will corrode and, and all of that. And yet we do that. We do that all the time. This person, this boyfriend, this girlfriend, they'll complete me. This new house, it will complete me. This new job, this new promotion, this new inheritance, that will take care of it. Can I just tell you really quick, this whole Harvey Weinstein sex scandal that's going on in Hollywood tells us one thing that we always are blinded by, and that is Hollywood is way sadder than we ever give them credit for. They got all the money, they got all the pleasure, they got all that, and what we're learning, they're way more broken than anybody would have ever imagined. So stop thinking your temporal fixes are going to fix things. And listen, before I forget and before I go on, the only thing that does fix it is Jesus. And so that moves us to a hopeless situation. Now I want you to recognize very quickly that in this hopeless situation... It's not the intent of the passage, nor do I want to squeeze it into the passage, but I will make reference to the fact that in this lame man, we see ourselves spiritually. 
In this lame man, we see ourselves spiritually disabled by birth because of sin. We find ourselves away from God, unable to do the things that we should have been able to do. Sin has now caused us to not have a right relationship. A right relationship with our world, a right relationship with our God. And as a result of that, we go about this world in our sin, grabbing for whatever we can to make life a little bit easier, a little more worth living. And so we grab the things of this world, thinking those things will take care of life, filling our lives with those things. Only to find out that the only thing that truly can save us is something outside of ourselves. By the grace and mercy of someone else, that we may have the cure that we need, that cure being Jesus Christ. A hopeless situation leads us to see a heavenly solution. A heavenly solution. Scholars believe that when this lame man was sitting there, he had been there for some time. In fact, in chapter 4, we are told that this crippled man was more than 40 years of age. Now, I don't know how long his practice of going to the temple was, but one scholar particularly said, and he speculates, I wonder if this crippled man, if he was more than 40 years of age, that means he was older than Jesus, this is 33 AD, I wonder if this crippled man had been sat there as a young boy at the gate of the temple when Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus. I wonder if, he goes on and says, I wonder if this crippled man was there at the temple gate when Jesus, as a nine or ten-year-old, stands before the uh, temple leaders and teaches them as a young boy. Remember when his mom and dad take off thinking he's with them? And they take off to go back home and they got to come back to Jerusalem to get Jesus because he's in the temple? This guy asked the question, I wonder if he was there. I wonder if this man was there when Jesus, and now the speculation gets a little more plausible, I wonder if this man was there when Jesus, as this new rabbi, who would go into the temple and would unveil the scroll and read from the prophet Isaiah and say, in your sitting, in your hearing, this word has been fulfilled. I wonder if he had experienced Jesus then. I wonder if he had experienced Jesus as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday Many people believe this man knew who Jesus was. But like many in our world today who have a cursory understanding and knowledge of Jesus, they had not experienced Jesus. And so how was this man who was lame going to experience Jesus? I want you to notice the heavenly solution involves Christians extending love. Christians or Christ followers extending love. So now we've gotten through two verses today. We're moving really quick, aren't we? All right, so now we see that Peter and John are heading in. They see this lame man, and their eyes capture one another, if you will. And seeing that Peter and John's about to go into the temple, he asks for alms. Hey, guys, help me. It doesn't seem to think that they know who Peter and John are. They're just ordinary guys, and they say, hey, help me. Can you help a guy out? Can you help a crippled man out? Can you give a little something? And Peter's response is, listen, I don't have silver or gold. Now, that, listen, doesn't mean that when you see a panhandler in Chicago, that that's your biblical response. If you've got silver and gold, give silver and gold. So what we're going to believe is this isn't some Christian response of Peter, that like the disciples of what we've known during Jesus' time, they didn't have a lot of money. Remember, they weren't working. They were being benefited and cared for by the, by the good of other people so that they could continue to do their ministry. So they have no money to give. 
And so he says, listen, I don't have gold or silver, but what I do have is way better than that. And that's a reminder that while we can help the temporal needs of someone, what is far greater is the spiritual need. Peter and John say, even if we had money and we gave it to you, it would help you for a moment, which is good, which is important that we do, which extends love, but you need Jesus. You need to be healed. You need to be set free. And so they extend love. I want you to notice the love that is shown to this man. First of all, he is carried each and every day by people. That's love. That's love. Second, he's given alms from people. Now, we don't know if these alms were given out of pity or they were given out of obligation. You know, the guy's at a perfect spot, right? He's at the temple court. So you're walking in, going to church. And the guy's like, hey, help me out. And you know what the Bible said about your need to give to people and their hurts and sorrows. And so this guy had positioned himself in a great spot and that the guilt value, if you will, was primo, okay? And so this man, maybe people are feeling obligated, but I'm going to imagine there were some who were filled with compassion for this man and they gave. And so they extended love. But I want you to notice Peter and John especially. Peter and John extended love. And a couple things that I want you to see with regards to this. Number one, they weren't too busy to do so. They weren't too busy. They stopped. They had places to go. They had people to see. They had religious obligations to get to. But they stopped. Number two, they entered into the hurt of the lame man. Notice it says, and they asked and fixed his atten- asked them to fix his attention on them. Listen, I, I want to see you. I want to have a discussion with you. I want to talk with you. I want to look you eye to eye. They weren't too busy, nor did they allow their good to not be soured by someone who isn't doing well. Some of us have this mentality that life is good, so stay away from anybody whose life isn't good. I don't want them to cramp my style. I don't want them to take away my happiness buzz. And Peter and John say, listen, no, you need help. And while we can't help you in the way you think you need to be helped, we can help you in a way that you maybe don't even know. Number three, they weren't too judgmental. How many of us have seen a person on the side of the street and judge them before we know anything about them? How many times have we judged when someone has said something has happened to them and we don't know the full extent of the story and we've already prejudged them that it's their fault and their sin? This man needs help and his neighbors need to help him. His neighbors need to care for him because unbeknownst to him and not because of anything he's done, he finds himself crippled and in need of help. Brothers and sisters, what an awesome reminder that we should always be on with regards to helping not only our neighbors but even strangers amongst us. I think of the words from the songwriter Brandon Heath, who puts it this way, all those people going somewhere, why have I never cared? He says, give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see. Everything that I keep missing, give me your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are even far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. Some of us are blinded 
by the hurts and the sorrows around us. And because of that, we are unfitting examples of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. Because let us never forget, we are that lame man. And Jesus who was well, Jesus who was rich, came, grabbed our attention, kneeled down to us and said, Hey, I can make you well. And we've experienced that. Number two, we need to extend love. Number two, we see unbelievers experiencing Jesus. So here in the first part of the passage, we got the lame man. In the second part of the passage, which I'll address in fact next week as well, is the crowd and, and more of the sermon that is preached because we heal, this lame man gets healed. He's 40 years old. Everybody knows he's a cripple and they've seen him now healed. And they're like, holy cow, how did that happen? We got questions and thousands of people begin to gather together. We're going to learn in chapter four that this multitude of people come around Peter and John and they want to know, how'd you do it? What's the secret? And Peter begins to proclaim, it isn't our piety. It isn't our power. It's Jesus. And you need to experience Jesus. But how do we know if people experience Jesus? How do we know as we share Jesus with others, how do we know if there's an experience that's taking place? I want you to notice, first of all, there's life change in the people around. This man goes from being on the ground, hurting, to now in the name of Jesus, jumping up and leaping for joy and praising God. That you cannot dispute. You see, we live in a, in a culture where people who say they experience Jesus haven't really experienced Jesus. They say they have, but they haven't. This man, you know he experienced something. He was lame and now he's running around yelling and screaming at the top of his lungs, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. Number two, experiencing Jesus will mean that you're going to praise God. This guy praises God. He doesn't praise the disciples. He doesn't praise uh, someone else. He praises God. God is the one who healed me. And if you want to know if someone's experiencing Jesus, they are pointing and exalting Jesus as the one who has fixed everything, who has changed them forever. And so a person who's experienced Jesus, when someone says, why do you have this joy? It's because of Jesus. Why do you have this hope? It's because of Jesus. How can you deal with such sorrow and such pain and such suffering? It is because of Jesus. This man over and over again points to Jesus. Finally, we'll see in the text, later in the sermon, that the way that we know that people experience Jesus is by turning from their sin and repenting. In verse 20, 19 and in verse 26, Peter in his sermon says, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. In verse 26, he says that God may bless you by turning every one of you away from your wickedness. So how do we know if someone's experiencing Jesus? Well, let me ask you, are you turning from your sin? Are you running from it? Are you doing everything in power to stay away from it? That's experiencing Jesus. And we need to extend love so that people can experience Jesus. Notice next, it will involve confronting sin no matter the audience. And i got to close this thing out. In verses 12 through 19, very quickly, the miracle takes place. People don't know why. They're flabbergasted. They know this man. They've seen him all these years. They know he's a cripple, and now he's walking, and that's a problem because I don't know what to do with that within their theology. The chief priests and leaders, they don't know what to do with it, as we'll see in chapter 4. 
And what does Peter do? Peter gets up and says, hey, an opportunity to preach. And he could have preached how great people are. He could have preached about how uh, wonderful people are. But notice what he does. Ten different times he says, you, 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 you. He points his finger and says, you. And he doesn't say very nice things to them. You delivered Jesus over. You chose a murderer over the Savior of the world. You accused him falsely. You did not esteem him. When he had an opportunity to be let off because he hadn't committed any crimes, you threw him back into the clink. You, 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 you are the problem. And some of us this morning will say right away, I don't like Peter's kind of preaching. It's too judgmental. Don't tell me what to do. And I want to remind you, the guy that's preaching it, this isn't Jesus preaching it. This is Peter who himself denied Jesus. And one of the things we've got to be careful with is that good biblical preaching will confront sin. And here's the hard thing to swallow. Good biblical preaching will come from a preacher who himself has sinned telling you to stop sinning. So I got my own problems, I got my own sin, but God in his infinite wisdom, and I don't know why, and sometimes I really struggle with this, why would God allow a sinful man like myself to preach to a group of sinners and tell you, you have done things that have disobeyed God? Now here's where I got to balance that. When I'm pointing at you, I got to remember there's a whole lot of fingers pointing back at me. But we can write off real quick, well, who are you, Peter, to say this? Well, Peter is a divine instrument of God's, even though he is a broken instrument of God's. He's a divine instrument of God to proclaim the good news. Evangelism is us as broken, filthy sinners who have been saved by grace, going to a world and confronting them as we were confronted about our sin. But judge as you would want to be judged. Confronted as you would want to be confronted. So Peter confronts him and says, you, you are the reason, you're the problem. But notice in verse 17, he opens the door, he says, you did this in ignorance. You didn't know. You didn't have a relationship with Jesus. You didn't understand all of it. But now you do. And so now you're not in ignorance. Now you know the power of God that was working through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one that the prophets proclaimed about and prophesied about, the one now that we saw with our own eyes who has been resurrected from the grave. This Jesus you sinned against in your ignorance, but now you know the rest of the story. So now what will you do? And notice that not only does it involve confronting sin, but let us never forget it involves offering grace offering grace starting with the patriarchs and through the prophets peter tells the story that jesus is the one who came to save people from sin to heal the lame to set the captives free and that's what they're seeing and now what are they called to do turn from their sin and experience what refreshing and restoration and that's what I'm uh, telling you. If you are living in your sin today, you should be confronted of it. Your sin is going to send you to hell. But because of God's amazing love for you, God in His rich mercy sent Jesus to die that you can have refreshing, you can have restoration, and you can spend eternity in heaven with Him. What are you going to do? Are you going to stay there now out of your ignorance? Or will you bow the knee, turn from your wicked ways, and follow Jesus. This man was crippled. 
and he experienced God's mercy. And so can you. No matter how bad your past was, whether it was your fault, whether it was you who handed Jesus over or nailed Jesus to the cross, there's always grace. Turn from your sin and he'll forgive you. And finally, Christ followers, remember that we are to take the mission of God to heart. And that we're to reach even the broken and the despised things of this world with his message.